With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you once again for listening. Before we get to today's episode, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please give us a review or leave us a comment on your favorite podcast platform. I'm always looking for ways to improve the podcast, so feedback is always appreciated. On today's episode, we'll start with Napoli's big derby win over Roma on an emotional night in Napoli. In part 2, we'll recap all the other action from match day 9. And in part 3, we'll preview Napoli's Europa League match on Thursday against AZ Alkmaar. So let's start with the big derby on Sunday. Before the match, banners made by the Curva were placed around the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. Thankfully, the councillor agreed to remove the word Comunale, which means municipality, from the proposed name. Lorenzo Insigne came out before the match and placed a wreath of flowers by one of the pictures of Maradona on the side of the pitch. Our boys came out wearing a special edition kit that combined the colors of Napoli with the stripes and black shorts of Argentina. The players also wore a black band on their arms. During the team photo before the match, Insigne held the Maradona jersey, and like all matches across Serie A this weekend, a minute of silence was observed before the match, and there was a pause in the 10th minute to give Maradona one last ovation. But the most fitting tribute was the match itself, so here's how it went. The colors of Napoli. Fused with the colours of Argentina. Tonight, the city commemorating a football icon who enabled them to realise their dream. Diego Maradona elevating this club to an altogether different level. Never more successful before his arrival. Never more successful since his departure. Usually, he's looking to almost score at the far post and hope somebody gets across 
the goalkeeper. Oh, and he's found a direct route to goal with a glorious goal after half an hour. The Neapolitan Lorenzo Insigne. A magnificent free kick from the homegrown talent that is Lorenzo Insigne on this poignant night that he dedicated to the man who passed this week for whom Napoli was really regarded as home. Diego Maradona would certainly have been proud of that effort from Napoli's current captain this evening. So Marco Di Bello eventually gets us underway for the second half here. Napoli in their fourth kit, as they've called it tonight. These Argentinian-style stripes. Oh, very nonchalantly done by Mario Rui. Lovely control and spin on that to feed Insigne. This is a lovely build-up from Napoli, and it's a splendid goal. It really is. Fabian Ruiz rounding off a fine-flowing move. That's a lovely switch here, and Napoli could put this game to bed here. Elmas, and his Mertens for three. Politano, still Politano, rounding the keeper and rounding off the victory in style. 90 minutes are up. In the final analysis, it simply meant more for Napoli. A fine send-off and a fitting send-off with Napoli halting Roma in their tracks. As you heard, Napoli won 4-0 on goals from Lorenzo Insigne, Fabian Ruiz, Dries Mertens, and Matteo Politano. This was easily Napoli's best match of the season and easily Roma's worst. It was a complete domination from start to finish. Napoli won on all areas of the pitch. We won every individual battle. And the goals themselves, or at least three of them, were like mini tributes to Maradona as well. The first was a free kick that dipped over the wall to beat Mirante at the near post. Aside from the fact that it was Insigne's right boot, it was very similar to what we saw Maradona do time and time again. I loved Insigne's tribute after the goal. Maybe I'm just seeing what I want to see, but he appeared to be fighting back his tears as he ran to midfield to grab Maradona's jersey, which he held in front of the camera, and then kissed the name on the jersey four times. The second goal started with an audacious backhill volley from Mario Rui of all people to pick out Insigne on the wing. It was exactly the type of flick you would see from Maradona. And then on the fourth goal, Politano dribbled through five Roma players and around Mirante, which was again similar to what Maradona used to do on a regular basis. So there were plenty of tributes before, during, and after the match. In this review, I'm going to talk about everything that went wrong for Roma, and we'll revisit my three keys to the match from our preview, which is something I'm going to start doing for all previews and reviews. But first, let's start with the lineups. Paolo Fonseca went with the exact 11 that we were expecting. The only difference was in the arrangement of the back three in the 3-4-2-1. Antonio Mirante started in goal. We had Roger Ibanya starting in the middle of the three center backs with Gianluca Mancini to his left and Brian Cristante to his right. Instead, Cristante started in the middle with Ibanez on the left and Mancini on the right. The two central midfielders were Lorenzo Pellegrini and Jordan Vertu. Leonardo Spinazzola played at left wing back and Rick Karsdorp played at right wing back. And Pedro, Henrik Mkhitaryan, and Eden Dzeko played in the front three, with Dzeko at the striker. 
Napoli had only one change to our predicted 11. Gennaro Gattuso lined up in the 4-2-3-1, though it often looked like a 4-3-3 depending on where Zielinski was at any point in time. Alex Meret started in goal with David Ospina still recovering from injury. Kalidou Koulibaly and ex-Roma player Kostas Manolas started at centre-back. Mari Rui started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Maradona's namesake Diego Demis started over the suspended Timoy Bakayoko in the double pivot alongside Fabian Ruiz. Napoli's own Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Chucky Lozano started on the right wing. That was the one difference we had Matteo Politano starting. Finally, Piotr Zielinski started in the 10th spot behind Dries Mertens. So let's start with Roma's performance. Not to take anything away from Napoli's play, which we'll talk about when we do the keys to the match, but Roma's performance was just dreadful in this match. It was so bad that a close Juventino friend of mine went so far as to suggest that Roma lost on purpose. I don't buy that, not with how Roma have started the season and how important it is for them financially to qualify for the Champions League, not to mention this being a derby. Roma as an organization has a lot of class and they showed that on social media with how they paid their respects for the loss of Maradona. That includes their collaboration with Roma legend Bruno Conti who visited one of Maradona's memorial sites to deliver a flower arrangement displaying Maradona's number 10. But they definitely did not throw this game away nor should they have. I think this was just a case for Roma where everything that could have gone wrong did. Let's start with their approach, which was to defend and counter. I can see why Roma took that approach, because they have one of the best, if not the best, counterattacks in the league, and we have not been very good at defending the counterattack. We also know that Napoli have struggled to score against teams that get 10 or 11 guys behind the ball. What I think Roma got wrong was how they defended. They defended in a 4-5-1, which again is understandable given Napoli's recent offensive struggles, but Roma played very compact. Their forwards didn't press at all, they just sat back and let Napoli come at them. They also played a high line, which I thought was very risky with Chucky Lozano on the field because of the pace he has. Lozano did exploit that line quite often in the first half. Even though I preferred Politano to start, Lozano was excellent. Politano was excellent off the bench. Besides the goal, he also played the long ball that ultimately led to Merton's goal. When I saw that high line, I was hoping to see more balls over the top, but fortunately with how the game went, it didn't really matter. Ironically, in the first half, it was actually Roma that were looking to play the long ball over the top, but they were easily closed down by Manolas and Koulibaly. Fonseca did recognize that playing so compact wasn't working and made an adjustment to start the second half. Roma pressed more in the second half and it was quite effective. Their best spell was from the start of the second half to the Fabian goal. Even though they never created any serious goal scoring threats, I thought the match was fairly even during that stretch. The second thing that went wrong was the goalkeeping. Antonio Mirante had just an awful day in goal. On the first goal, I saw a lot of people criticizing Mirante's positioning. I actually don't think the positioning was the issue. Mirante was lined up in the middle of the goal. If anything, he should have been slightly more to his left, given that he had a two-man wall. The problem was that he started to cheat to his left, probably knowing that Insigne typically curls the ball to the far post, and that little hesitation was just enough for the ball to get past him. It also didn't help that the wall consisted of Pedro and Henrik Mkhitaryan, who are not exactly the tallest players on Roma. On the second goal, I thought Mirante's positioning was fine, but once again he cheated in the wrong direction. This time he started leaning to his right on Fabian Shaw, which ended up going to his left, but in fairness, it's always more difficult when the shot goes through the defender's legs. And on the third goal, Mirante spilled Elmas's shot. The ball was well hit and bounced just in front of him, so it would have been difficult to smother that shot, but you want your keeper to push the ball out to safety, not straight back into the danger area. 
The only goal that Mirante couldn't do much on was the fourth. Roma's defending was terrible on that play. You could see that Roma had pretty much given up by that point and they hung Mirante out to dry. It's worth noting that Mirante did make a couple of big saves in this match. In the 43rd minute, he made a great save on Dries, who broke free and tried to pick his corner. That was probably his best save of the match. He made another save on Mertens just before the half, though that was pretty much straight at him. And in the second half, he stopped a hard shot by Lozano, though again, that was straight at him from a tight angle. The third thing that went wrong for Roma was the injuries. First, Gianluca Mancini had to be removed in the 38th minute. In the 27th minute, he appeared to re-aggravate his muscle injury that he just returned from. He tried to run it off, but it persisted, so he was replaced by Juan Jesus. That one is somewhat on Fonseca and Roma's medical staff for rushing both Mancini and Ibanez back for this match. That risk always exists. Then Jordan Vertu appeared to pull a hamstring in the 40th minute. He also tried to run it off, but would have to come out at the break to be replaced by Gonzalo Villar. He's obviously a big part of Roma's midfield. And fourth, and probably most importantly, Roma ran into an extremely motivated Napoli team for obvious reasons. Even though the Europa League match against Rijeka was the first after Maradona's passing, this felt like the match that was truly dedicated to his memory. And that's a good segue to our three keys of the match, so let's get to that next. The first was that we needed to score first. We saw what happened in the Milan match after Milan scored the first goal. Milan sat back and defended and we really struggled to break through. Obviously we scored the first goal and it had to come from our Napolitan captain. If not him, perhaps it would have been Diego Demme. Knowing our psychological struggles, I think the match could have gone very differently had Roma scored first. But given what we just talked about in terms of Roma's approach, that never seemed very likely. The second key to the game was that we needed to defend the counter. Roma had so little of the ball that this wasn't much of an issue either. Roma did attempt to counter a couple of times, but every time they did Napoli race back in numbers, Diego Demme played a huge part in helping to defend and filling in any gaps between the lines. He had a solid match back in his more comfortable role where we saw him have a lot of success last season. The third key to the game was that we needed to get between the lines. We noted in our preview that Piotr Zielinski would be very important because he has that ability to bust through the lines with his direct style and he did just that. He created that Mertens chance that Mirante stopped with a vertical run in the middle of the pitch. He made a similar run early in the second half which led to Lozano's chance. Insignia also did a great job getting into those spaces which also allowed Mario Rui to get forward on the left side to cross the ball in. We've seen them do that for a while now and we were also helped by that high line so if the pass wasn't there Napoli could switch the play usually from left to right with Lozano's pace on the wing. As great as this match was there was one sore spot which was our inability to play in a decent corner kick. We had 8 corner kicks in the first half and I believe 5 or 6 of them were played short which is fine if it's part of a set piece or if you're just improving the angle for a decent delivery but often that was not the case. There was one corner kick where we passed the ball all the way back to the halfway point of our own half. We have two center backs who are very good in the air especially Manolas and every time we play a short corner we waste an opportunity for those guys or for others to score. I know a lot of people who wanted Fauzi Gulam to start this match because he is actually a pretty good crosser of the ball but there was no way he was going to play two games in four days when he's barely played in the last year and when he just played 90 minutes against Rijeka. But Mertens and Mario Rui are really not doing a good enough job right now. The player that I would like to see taking the corner kicks is Fabian. Even though he's big, he's not much of an aerial threat and we saw him play some excellent balls for Spain against Germany. 
Other than that, though, this was an excellent performance. We definitely deserved the three points. And with Sassuolo losing and Juventus drawing, the win put us right back in the mix of things. We'll talk about how the rest of the table is shaping up in part two when we recap all the other action from match day nine. We'll start our match day 9 recap with the big teams that played on Saturday. Inter, Juventus, and Atalanta all played as they had Champions League midweek. That's also why Lazio played in the early time on Sunday. Inter beat Sassuolo 3-0 on goals from Alexis Sanchez, a Vlad Kirikas own goal, and Roberto Gagliardini. Inter stormed out of the gates in this match with the first two goals coming in under 15 minutes. With Romelu Lukaku on the bench, the combination of Sanchez and Lautaro Martinez actually worked really well. They linked up on the first goal, but that play was largely the result of Lautaro's play. First, he popped the ball over Consili, then he outmuscled Kirikesh before playing a perfect pass to Sanchez while turning and falling backwards. Sanchez did well too, he just calmly waited for Consili to go down before sliding his shot into the back of the goal. The Argentinian did his best Maradona impression in the 11th minute, trying to chip Consili from the top of the box, but his shot just missed the far post. Kirikas had a rough first half. After getting beat on the first goal, Arturo Vidal smashed his cross into the area. The cross, which may have been a shot that was just off the mark, bounced off Kirikas and slowly trickled into his own goal. Sassuolo settled down and from about the 20th minute to the end of the half, they were the better side. Unfortunately, they were not able to beat Handanovic, who in the end only needed to make a few routine saves. The second half was a bit more subdued. This was a rare Inter match where most of the excitement was in the first half. Usually it's the opposite with them. Besides a very nice goal by Gagliardini, who was a bit of a surprise selection, not much happened in the second half. Inter were very happy to sit back and protect the lead. I thought Milan Skriniar was very good in that regard. Even late in the match, you could hear Conte telling his players not to concede, and they didn't. That was only the second clean sheet for Inter this season. Finally, I thought Arturo Vidal was very good in this match after an absolute horror show in the Champions League midweek. This was a huge win for Inter, both in terms of morale and in terms of the table. With Serie A being so competitive this season, that win put Inter in second place, having the head-to-head advantage over Sassuolo. Juventus drew Benevento 1-1 in another battle between ex-Milan teammates Andrea Pirlo and Filippo Inzaghi, with Bonucci and Chiellini still recovering from injury and Ronaldo getting a rest day. 
This was another opportunity for Dybala to find some form after he wasted a chance against Franz Varos in the Champions League. However, once again, he was unable to score, though I think he played better in this match than he did against Franz Varos. In the 26th minute, he had a chance, just missed the target after a lovely build-up, but the low shot didn't have enough bend on it. He also had an excellent chance in the 85th minute, but Lorenzo Montipo made an excellent save going against his momentum. But with the good, there's also the bad. Dybala went to ground in the 35th minute, but it was a clear dive and the penalty wasn't given. And then Benevento came back the other way and nearly scored, but Lapadula glanced his header just wide of the far post. Dybala also had a chance in the 53rd minute that went way over the bar, similar to his shot attempt in the Ferenc Varos match. Pirlo also left Bernardeschi and Kulusevski on the bench, favoring Federico Keza and Aaron Ramsey, who made his return from injury. I thought Keza was one of Juve's better players in this match. He played a gorgeous long ball to Morata on the Juve goal. He nearly set up Morata for a second, showing both his pace and quality in getting to the ball and playing the cross. Morata did really poorly on the header, only a few yards away from the empty goal. Benevento scored the equalizer just before the break. Pasquale Scatarella's low hard shot was stopped by Wojtek Szczesny but went out for a corner. Benevento nearly executed their set piece to perfection, but Artur broke up the play. Unfortunately for Juventini, Artur's clearance fell perfectly for Gaetano Letizia. He didn't get too much on the volley, but he picked his corner to level the score. Ricardo Improta had another fine match for Benevento, and with how he's playing, he should be a regular starter for Inzaghi. Pirlo threw everything he had at Benevento in the second half, but neither side was able to score again. I think Pirlo made a huge mistake underestimating this Benevento squad. I know Juve always want to do well in the Champions League, but as we mentioned last episode, they've already qualified for the knockout stage. For me, that means they should be starting their best 11 in Serie A, which means starting Ronaldo and Klusevski. I know Juve's B team should be able to beat Benevento, but at the very least, Ronaldo should have been on the bench. Juve's B team should also be able to beat Dinamo Kiev, and not winning that match is of lesser consequence. Juve still need to beat Barcelona to win the group, and if they can't beat this Barcelona team, then they're not going to win the Champions League, which means again they should focus on Serie A. Not only did Juve drop points, but after the final whistle, Morata was shown a red card for something he said to the referee, so he'll miss Juve's next match, which is the Derby della Mole. Moving on, Verona picked up another impressive result, this time beating Atalanta 2-0. I was really surprised with this result after a very impressive performance in the Champions League against Liverpool. I thought Atalanta would carry that form into this match, but clearly they did not. Even Juric's men played Atalanta very physically, especially Duvan Zapata. There was always a player tight on him and he was constantly being tugged and nudged. Verona made him very uncomfortable in this match. Nonetheless, Atalanta still had plenty of the ball and they took their fair share of shots but their finishing was really poor. Josip Ilicic had Atalanta's best chance of the half in the 18th minute, and he should have scored but was leaning back and skied his shot over the bar. The game really opened up in the second half with Atalanta pressing for the first goal and Verona looking to counter. There was a stretch early in the half where each side was exchanging opportunities. Miguel Veloso came off the bench and moments later smashed a dipping shot into the bar. That's the second week in a row that he's hit the bar shortly after coming on. Then at the other end, Marco Silvestri made a brilliant save on Zapata's header, and then he jumped up quickly to punch the ball out just before Ilicic got to the rebound. In the 56th minute, Rafael Toloi had an excellent chance from close range, but Adrian Temez made an important block to save a goal. Then back the other way, Samuel Di Carmina had a free header in front of the goal, but couldn't connect fully and missed the far post. 
Veloso did eventually get his first goal of the season with a beautifully taken penalty kick to the top corner. I was hoping he would miss it as Zakani was already going to ground before the foul happened. To make matters worse for Atalanta, Golini got hurt diving to save the penalty and had to be removed from the match. Veloso and Zakani combined on the second goal. Veloso's ball was perfectly weighted. Zakani timed his run to perfection. He received the pass really well with the outside of his right boot, which was the only touch he needed to set up the shot, which he placed neatly into the bottom corner. That goal was scored in the 83rd minute and effectively put the game away. We've talked on this podcast about Atalanta's early season success and how it was largely because of how clinical they were. For the last little while, they've struggled to hit the target and it's really affecting their results. After starting the season with three straight wins, they've now won only once in their last six Serie A matches and during that stretch, they've only scored five goals. Meanwhile, Verona moved into sixth place with that win, at least for a day. They have the best defense in the league. Anytime one of Atalanta's star players got the ball in the box, they were swarmed by two or three Verona players. They're very organized, and when they defend in numbers, their back line is very difficult to penetrate. They also do a great job of anticipating the pass. They made a number of interceptions in this match. And once again, Ivan Juric is showing how great of a coach he is. He brought in Veloso at the start of the second half, and he completely turned the game around. What was even more impressive was the player that Veloso replaced, Andrea Danzi, had just replaced Matteo Lovato in the 31st minute, so obviously Juric saw something either wasn't working or he saw a weakness that he could exploit. Moving on, Udinese shocked Lazio with a 3-1 win in the early match on Sunday. Torge Arslan, Ignacio Pusetto, and Fernando Forestieri scored for Udinese. Chiro Immobile scored the lone goal for Lazio from the penalty spot. This was easily Udinese's best performance of the year, and they did it without some key players. Stefano Okaka, Ilya Nesterovsky, Kevin Lasagna, Rolando Mandragora, Sebastian De Mayo, Thomas Ovujan, and John Victor Makengo were all out for Udinese. This was also Udinese's most offensive performance as well. They normally sit deep and look to counter. They still defended deep and made it very difficult for Lazio to penetrate, but they also got forward and knocked the ball around much more than they normally do. Of course, Rodrigo De Paul was one of Udinese's best players, and I thought Roberto Pereira had a great game on the left side. He made a great play to set up the first goal by spotting Arslan at the top of the box. Arslan had just come on the pitch after receiving treatment for a minor knock. With Okaka, Nesterovsky, and Lasagna all out, Udinese started Pusetto and Foristieri as the dual strikers and both took advantage of the opportunity. Pusetto made a great play on the second goal shortly after he missed an open header. He started the counterattack and then did really well to receive the return pass from DePaul. He made a brilliant touch to get past Danilo Cataldi before tucking his shot into the side of the goal. Like Pusetto, Foristieri missed an open header in the first half but made up for it with a goal later in the match. That was his first in Serie A this season, though he did score one in the Coppa Italia. Simone Inzaghi tried to respond at the break, bringing on two central midfielders, but neither was Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. In fact, Inzaghi used all five of his substitutes and he did not feature. Lazio were very flat in this match. Other than the penalty and one other attempt by Immobile that was well stopped, they did not create a whole lot. Perhaps they were looking ahead to the Champions League and took this match for granted. So with Sassuolo, Juventus, Atalanta, and Lazio all dropping points, Milan had an excellent opportunity to put a little space between them and the rest. They played against a struggling Fiorentina who were hoping to play better with the return of Frank Ribéry. Prandelli lined up in a 4-3-3 with Eric Pulgar in the middle, Gaetano Castrovilli on the left, and Sofian Amrabat on the right. For Milan, Antti Rebic moved to the striker position to cover for the injured Ibrahimovic and Brahim Diaz got the start on the left wing. Meanwhile, Sandro Tonali started in the double pivot over Ismail Benacer. 
A lot of people thought this would be a tough match for Milan without Ibrahimovic. Milan did win all four of their matches without Zlatan when he had coronavirus, but they were against Bodo Glimt and Rio Ave in the Europa League and Spezia and Crotone in Serie A. Milan won this match 2-0, though many people are still not giving Milan much credit as Fiorentina have been so bad lately. They looked pretty awful on the first goal, which was scored by Alessio Romagnoli. Fiorentina's marking on the corner kick was really poor, specifically Eric Pulgar, who completely lost Romagnoli at the back post. Frank Kessie made an excellent play to flick on the header at the near post to set up Romagnoli. Kessie was really good for Milan once again. I'd say outside of Ibrahimovic, he's probably been Milan's best player. Kessie had two penalty kicks in the first half. He waited a lifetime for VAR to review the first penalty, which was a very close call, but Kessie calmly placed his shot into the middle of the goal. I thought the second penalty decision was really soft. Martin Caceres got his arm up on Teo, but Teo went down really easily. He's an expert at winning fouls, but the soccer gods corrected that. Drogovski made an excellent save to keep Fiorentina in the match. Hakan Chalonoglu came close to scoring Milan's third early in the second half, but his left-footed shot hit the upright and stayed out. Fiorentina only had two real chances in this match. On the first, Frank Ribéry played a lovely through ball to Dusan Valovic, but Donnarumma pushed his shot off the bar and out. On the second, Ribéry got clear to the goal from the left wing and tried to chip over Donnarumma, but the Nazionale number one got a hand on the shot and kept it out. Otherwise, Davide Calabria did a great job of neutralizing Ribéry on the left side, just like he did to Lorenzo Insigne against Napoli. So with the win, Milan are now 5 points clear of Inter and Sassuolo in 2nd and 3rd, and 6 points clear of Juve, Napoli and Roma in 4th, 5th and 6th. So that's what happened at the top of the table, now let's move to the bottom half. Bologna beat Crotone 1-0, Crotone got Sebastiano Luperto back from suspension, but curiously lost Kofi Gigi, Ahmad Benali, Lucas Iligardi and Emmanuel Riviere all to injury on the week of the match. Crotone played quite well in the first half and it seemed like they might get the first goal, but unfortunately they did not. Lucas Skorupski did really well to deny Simi's header in the 38th minute. That turned out to be Crotone's best chance of the match. In the final minute of the first half, Lisandro Magalan threw Rodrigo Palacio to the ground twice in the span of a minute and somehow he wasn't shown a card. However, he still paid. The second foul led to the only goal of the match. Musa Barrow played a beautiful cross into the area, which Nicolas Sansona headed hard and low, but Alex Cordaz made a brilliant save. Rodrigo Palacio headed the rebound into the bar, and then finally Roberto Soriano headed in the second rebound. Sansona was only in the match because Ricardo Orsolini appeared to pull his hamstring early in the match and had to be removed. Meanwhile, that was Soriano's eighth goal contribution at home, consisting of five goals and three assists, which is the most for any player in Serie A this season. And even though Crotone needed to score, the second half was all Bologna. Crotone barely touched the ball, let alone coming close to scoring, and were probably lucky to only lose by one. Cagliari drew Spezia in a very entertaining match. Emmanuel Ghiassi and Imbala Nzola scored for Spezia, and Gio Pedro and Leonardo Pavoletti scored for Cagliari. This match was a tale of two halves. Spezia dominated the first half and nearly opened the scoring in the 23rd minute, but Alessio Cranio made an excellent save on Diego Farias, who was playing against his former club. Vincenzo Italiano has this Spezia side playing very calm, very tidy football, and they scored a well-deserved goal in the 35th minute. Left-back Simone Bastoni made a brilliant run to set up the goal. He started at midfield and dribbled past three Cagliari players before playing in a perfect ball across the face of the goal for Emmanuel Ghiassi to tap in. Cagliari were far better in the second half. In a way, it was a bit of good fortune that turned the momentum in this match. On the first goal, the Cagliari cross smashed into Matteo Ricci and fell perfectly for João Pedro, 
who did well with his finish. Only six minutes later, Cagliari went ahead with a beautiful team goal. It started with a toss by Cranio to Ricardo Sotil, who played an excellent switch to Adam Unas. Unas played a gorgeous through ball to Gabriela Zappa, who did really well to get to the ball and then to play in the cross. And then the back heel from Pavoletti was pure class. Pavoletti was making his first start in 16 months with Giovanni Simeone testing positive for COVID, and it was his first goal in 18 months. Simeone joined Nahit Hernandez and Diego Godin as important Cagliari players who were currently positive. Cagliari had a number of chances to add a third. In the 70th minute, Ricardo Sotil did great work on the left wing before picking out Unas in front of a wide open goal, but he somehow missed the target and the opportunity to record his first goal for Cagliari. Eight minutes later, Ivan Providel made an excellent save on Sotil, who got clear behind the Spezia back line. And in the 85th minute, Jao Pedro got around Providel, but couldn't pick out a teammate with the cross. Shortly after that, Alberto Cetti had a chance in front of goal, but he headed over the bar. Cranio was not to be outdone in the 88th minute. He made a ridiculous instinctive save on 19-year-old Roberto Piccoli's volley. In the end, Cagliari paid for not taking another one of their many chances in the second half. In the final minute of added time, Spezia were awarded a penalty. I personally thought that was a very soft decision. There was hardly any contact. Mbala and Zola converted the penalty, and shortly after that, the final whistle blew. Even though Cagliari squandered many chances in the second half, Spezia were excellent in the first half, so I thought this was a fair result. Torino drew Sampdoria 2-2. Neither coach was on the sidelines for this match. Marco Giampaolo was still in isolation after testing positive for COVID, and Claudio Ranieri was shown a red card in Sampdoria's previous match against Bologna. Andrea Bellotti returned for Torino after missing one match with a back injury. He made his presence known almost immediately, scoring the opening goal of the match in the 7th minute. However, Bellotti was correctly ruled offside by the VAR. That was unfortunate because the build-up to the goal was superb. Simone Zaza, Sueli Homiete, and Carolinetti played four one-touch passes, culminating in a clear break for Bellotti, who doesn't miss chances very often from that range. Belotti did get his goal in the 25th minute, but it may as well have been credited to Wilfried Single, who did really well to save the ball from going out to touch, and then burst past Tommaso Agello before playing in a perfect ball. That was already Belotti's 7th goal of the season and his 99th all-time for Torino. Other than that goal, not much else happened in the first half. Sampdoria made 4 changes at the half to change things up, and it seemed to work though it was two players who started the match that made the difference. Antonio Candreva scored in the 54th minute. He was a bit lucky that it fell for him, but the shot was well taken. It was straight at Salvatore Sirigu, but had too much pace for him to handle. That was actually Sampdoria's first shot on target in the match. Then in the 63rd minute, Candreva played a gorgeous long ball over the top to Fabio Cagliarella, and then he did what he does best with a ridiculous volley to beat Sirigu. The VAR review showed that Cagliarella timed his run perfectly, that goal came only moments after Emil Audero did really well to stop Ricardo Rodriguez's free kick from just outside the right corner of the box. Had it not been for Audero, Torino would have easily won this match. Moments after that Qualiarella goal, Audero made another great save on Zaza. Once again, Wilfried Single did really well to get past Santoria's back line before setting up Zaza. Then in the 76th minute, Audero made an excellent save on Mietes' volley, but he wasn't going to stop Mietes' header on the ensuing corner kick. His technique was flawless, placing the ball perfectly in the top corner of the goal. Audero later made an amazing double save on a Simone Verde volley and then on Lianco on the rebound. So Torino will probably be disappointed with the draw given how well they played. I continue to maintain that results will improve for Torino. Bellotti is always good, but Mietes and Singo have been great this season and Zaza has been very good lately as well. That said, with the draw, Torino did avoid their worst start to a season in the history of the club. 
Finally, Parma beat Genoa 2-1 in the final match of the round. Last season, Andreas Cornelius scored a tripleta in both meetings between these clubs, but it was Gervinho who stole the spotlight with a brace. Fabio Liverani switched to the 4-3-3 that Roberto da Versa had so much success with last season. There was some pretty awful defending on all three goals in this match. On the first, Milan Badel conceded possession in his own half. Juraj Kuchka made the most of it. He played a lovely through ball to Gervinho and Gervinho smashed it into the back of the goal. Gervinho looked dangerous every time he touched the ball. He had two excellent chances just before the end of the first half. On the first, he didn't make good contact and the shot rolled harmlessly wide of the far post. On the second, the shot was excellent, but Genoa keeper Alberto Pagliari got just enough of the ball to push it into the bar. Gervinho didn't waste any time in the second half. About a minute in, he scored his second of the match. Once again, the defending was poor. Christian Zapata played a weak clearance straight to Gervinho, and if that wasn't bad enough, Gervinho's shot took a slight deflection off Zapata to beat Pagliari. Genoa responded really quickly. Only two minutes after Gervinho scored his second, Eldor Shomurodov, who's only the second Kazakh to ever play in Serie A, scored his first goal in Serie A. He made up for missing an excellent chance in the first half after making a brilliant run but failing to beat Luigi Seppe. The Parma defending was pretty awful on this goal too. First, Bruno Alves failed to head the ball clear. Then, Maxime Busi lost possession in his own box. Fabio Liverani wasn't too pleased about this goal. Moments before the goal, Stefano Sturaro and Juraj Kuchka collided at midfield, but no foul was called, and I thought the referee got that call right. Genoa were clearly the better side in the second half, but paid for not converting their chances. Besides that Shomurodov chance, Gianluca Scamacca had a glorious opportunity in the 30th minute. Lorenzo Pellegrini did really well on that play to get around Busi before picking out Scamacca in the box, but the young striker somehow missed the wide-open goal. Milan Badel had another opportunity in the 67th minute, but Seppe stopped that as well. Without Seppe in goal, I don't think Parma would have any chance of surviving. In the second half, Vincent Laurini picked up a minor injury and Alberto Grassi picked up what looked to be a very serious wrist injury, but Parma still managed to hold on for the win. That was Genoa's fourth straight loss, so all of a sudden Rolando Maran is on the hot seat. Meanwhile, this was a huge win for Parma in their quest for survival. They moved into the safe zone for the time being. So that will do for our recap of match day 9. In part 3, we'll preview Napoli's Europa League match against AZ Alkmaar. final part will preview Napoli's Europa League match on Thursday against AZ Alkmaar. Alkmaar are having a phenomenal start to the season so far. They've only lost twice in all competitions against Dinamo Kiev in the Champions League, 
qualifying stage and against Real Sociedad in the Europa League, they are undefeated in the Eredivisie. After starting with five straight draws, they've now won their last four straight matches. However, because of those draws, they are currently sitting in 7th place in the Eredivisie, 10 points behind Ajax. Ajax have had a torrid start to the season with 9 wins and a loss, and a ridiculous goal differential of plus 37, so Alkmaar are already 10 points back. During their 4-game winning streak, Alkmaar have outscored their opponents 9-1. Albert Gudmundsen and Toon Koopminers have now surpassed Danny DeWitt in goals, with 7 and 5 in all competitions respectively. And that attack will only be helped by the recent return of 19-year-old striker Myron Boadu. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Despite Alkmaar's COVID cases before the first meeting, I think they will have a very similar squad to the one we saw last time. Alkmaar typically line up in a 4-3-3, though like Napoli, it's very similar to a 4-2-3-1. Marco Bizo will start in goal. We should see Bruno Martins Indy and Pantelis Chatsiadiakos at centre-back. Before the first meeting, Timo Lecher was a regular starter at centre-back. He's now recovered from coronavirus and played the full 90 minutes against Heracles Alamo on the weekend, so we could see him start over Martins in the Orchats Diakos. Owen Windial should start at left-back and Jonas Svensson at right-back. Danny DeWitt will return to his regular position in the centre of the three-man midfield. Last meeting, he played at striker. Frederick Mitzio should play on the left and Toon Kupenmeier should play on the right side. Alkmaar's prolific striker Myron Boadu made his first start on the weekend since he returned from coronavirus and went back to his scoring ways with a goal. I think we'll see him at striker, which likely pushes Albert Gudmundsen to the left wing and relegates Jesper Carlsen to the bench. With DeWitt back in the midfield, Kelvin Stengs should return to his normal spot on the right wing. For Napoli, Gattuso told Sky Sport earlier this week, that he hasn't decided whether to use the 4-2-3-1 or the 4-3-3, but in the latter case, only Elmes can play with Zielinski and Fabian. I think we'll see a similar lineup to the one we saw in our last Europa League match, which was against Rijeka, but with a few changes. I think David Ospina is still not fit to play, which means Alex Meret would be back between the sticks. Kalidou Koulibaly should start at centre-back with Nikola Maksimovic. At some point, Koulibaly will need to get a rest, but I don't think it will be here. I think we'll see Fauzi Gulam at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right-back. Like Koulibaly, Di Lorenzo will need a rest at some point, so hopefully we get Kusai back soon. Or if not, then hopefully Kevin Malqui gets an opportunity. In the midfield, I think we'll see a well-rested Timoe Bakayoko back for this match. The one position I'm unsure about is Bakayoko's partner in the double pivot. I think you can make an argument for any of Fabian Ruiz, Diego Deme, or Stanislav Lobotka. Against Rijeka, we started Deme, but then he played again on Sunday against Roma. I was tempted to go with Lobotka, but our next match in Serie A is against a very weak Crotone team, so it makes more sense to play Fabian here and use Lobotka on the weekend, so I'll take Fabian to start this match. Up top, I think we'll see Lorenzo Insigne on the left wing and Matteo Politano on the right wing. Politano rested last match, and he has started every Europa League match for us so far. And in the middle, I think we'll see Piotr Zielinski in the number 10 spot behind Andrea Petania, but I wouldn't be shocked to see Dries Mertens in either of those positions. Again, if Mertens starts in the striker, then we can use Petania against Crotone. So with that, let's get to our three keys of the match. The first and most important is we need to approach this match with the right mentality. That's something Gattuso has talked about time and time again. And in large part, that's why we lost the first meeting with Alkmaar. They were missing a number of players due to COVID. And I think we went into that match thinking we had already won. 
The second key to the match is that we can't give Alkmaar space. That means a couple of things. It means controlling the tempo of the match. It means not conceding possession cheaply, especially in our own end. And it means not getting caught on the counterattack. We saw last time we played Alkmaar that they do have the quality that if you give them some space, that they can do some damage. Gattuso commented on that as well when he spoke to Sky Sport. He acknowledged that Alkmaar have never lost in the league and that if you give them the pitch, they can hurt you. A related concern is we need to have a strong start to the match. As we've seen against Rijeka and against Milan, we have a tendency to start slow. And it's usually in that first half hour of the match that we're sloppy and get punished. After that, we typically settle in. And as the match wears on and we start to bring on fresh legs off the bench, we tend to take over the match. Then the issue becomes putting the ball in the net, which is the third key to this match. We didn't score against Alkmaar last time we played when they sat back. We struggled to score against Milan when they sat back. And after starting the season with 12 goals in 3 matches, we had 8 matches in all competitions where we scored a combined 9 goals, which is an average of just over 1 goal per match. That streak ended with the big 4-0 win over Roma on the weekend, which was the first time we scored more than 2 goals in a match since we beat Atalanta 4-1 on match day 3 in Serie A. As we mentioned at the top of the preview, Alkmaar have had an excellent goal differential of late, including that 1-0 win over Napoli in the first meeting, Alkmaar have conceded only 5 goals in their last 9 matches in all competitions, which is an average of just over half a goal per match. The head official for this match is Ruddy Bouquet, his assistants are Guillaume Debar and Frederic Haquette, and the fourth official is Jeremy Pignard, and there is no VAR in the group stage. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a very controlled 2-0 win, which never really feels at risk. I'll give the goals to Matteo Politano, who's very hot right now, and I'll give the other one to Piotr Zielinski, who's been very good since returning. I think we'll carry the momentum from that Roma match into this one, and I think Gattuso will ensure that we take this match very seriously. Like I said, we have Crotone next in Serie A, so we can play a very strong team here. Not that we're taking Crotone lightly, but we should be able to beat them with some substitute players on the field. And if they're not getting it done, then we can bring in some of our regular starters off the bench. This match is also important in that a win would clinch our place in the knockout stage. Hopefully Real Sociedad drop points to Rijeka because that would mean a win against Alkmaar would guarantee top spot in the group. That would be huge for us because then the final match of the group stage would be a formality so we could rest some players and give our bench players some much needed minutes. If Real Sociedad beat Rijeka, which should be expected, then a win or a draw in that final match would still win the group for us. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, we need to focus on getting a win on Thursday first and I think that will happen. So that's our preview of Napoli versus Alkmaar. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ForzaNapoliPod. We'll talk to you again later in the week to review this match and to preview our next match against Crotone. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Si fuye, el hasta está, el hasta está.
El un te corre a pie, son un te destruye, su lago la Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.